With me in your Bibles, please, to Proverbs chapter 10. We'll begin our reading in verse 27 through the end of the chapter. Proverbs 10, 27. Hear now the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God. The fear of the Lord prolongeth days, but the years of the wicked shall be shortened. The hope of the righteous shall be gladness. But the expectation of the wicked shall perish. The way of the Lord is strength to the upright, but destruction shall be to the workers of iniquity. The righteous shall never be removed, but the wicked shall not inhabit the earth. The mouth of the just bringeth forth wisdom, but the froward tongue shall be cut out. The lips of the righteous know what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked speaketh Forwardness. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his most holy word. Our quotation is once again from the Reverend Charles Bridges and his commentary on the book of Proverbs. <clears throat> the fear of the Lord is not a single grace. It includes the substance of all godly tempers. For all are radically one principle from one source. It essentially differs from the fear of the wicked. They fear whom they hate, the child of God whom he loves. Whether his temporal life be shortened or prolonged, he lives long in a little time. He is an infinite gainer by the contraction of life. His days prolonged and swallowed up in one unclouded day of which the sun shall no more go down. Justly is the fear of the Lord contrasted with the wicked because the absence of his grace is their distinguishing mark, the principle of all their ungodliness. And often do we see the letter of this curse realized in the shortening of their years. Excessive worldliness wears out the spring of life. Sin often brings to an untimely end, sometimes The God of vengeance breaks out and takes away the daring offender with his stroke. Yet, if he be visited after the visitation of all men, awful indeed is the course of a long life wasted in folly and sin. Living little in a long time, the sinner being an hundred years old shall be accursed. Well said. Charles Bridges. Well, we don't have a lot of time today. I don't want to keep you way past the hour. Uh, We'll have a very shortened sermon today. We've been here in Proverbs chapter 10. We've been looking at this passage. Last week we looked at uh, the sluggard and we, we talked in several points. Let's remember what we said briefly here. We said that he, uh, the sluggard, because he is a, he is a, a, he's vinegar, to the teeth and smoke to the eyes of them that send him on his errand. There are several things that he loses. He loses the gift of meaningful and rewarding labor that God gave to him. 
we remember that labor is God's gift. We're told in our day that labor is, a, is an endless drudgery that we should seek to get out from under at every moment. No, labor is God's gift. Yes, it is fraught with the curse, but the curse itself is to drive us to the Lord. So labor is indeed a wonderful thing that God has given to us. And anyone that would take your labor away from you takes away the gift from God that God gave you. This is, this is a, a, a sign of judgment when governments tell people not to work and will pay you to sit at home. When governments tell farmers not to grow and will pay you instead. And all sorts of other egregious violations of the labor and work principle that was established when mankind was still innocent. Right? This is God's gift, Solomon will say in Ecclesiastes 2 and 5. This is God's gift. And so when the sluggard perverts that by, by becoming vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes of them that have hired him, right? what do we learn? We learn that he has lost the, the meaningful and rewarding labor that God gave him. Second, he, he loses his reputation and testimony among men because he is an idler and cannot be trusted. Right? So this is very, very difficult. This is a very difficult thing for the sluggard in that he loses his good name. He loses his reputation. When people think of him, they don't think of him as industrious and helpful and want to spend time with him and hire him. They think of him rather as smoke in the eyes and vinegar to the teeth. And so he loses his reputation and testimony. May I say that this is what Paul is arguing against in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, when he says, if a man does not work, neither shall he eat. We hear that there are some among you that labor not at all, but are busybodies. To such we command that they labor, work with their own hands, and eat that thing which is good. But if they won't work, neither shall they eat. Generosity is good unless it leads to indolence. And indolence is a sin condemned in Scripture. Let us all be industrious and excellent in our callings, right? Let us work with our own hands and eat our own bread with quietness rather than being a busybody in other men's matters. That's what happens when you become an idler. You become busy in other men's affairs rather than your own. And the Bible calls that a sin too. So labor is not only a great gift from God positively, but negatively it keeps you from other sins if you undertake it rightly. Well, we'll see that in just a moment. So then also we looked at some great and grand examples of diligence and obedience in scripture. Anybody remember the first man we looked at? Joseph, right? Joseph. We looked at Abraham. And especially that passage we referenced earlier speaking about Abraham uh, in Genesis chapter 22 and that Hebrew term, hineni, here I am ready to obey is essentially what that means. It means behold me. Literally. Essentially what it means is, here I am ready to obey whatever you command. And so God calls to Abraham, he says, Hineni, up, up the mountain you go with Isaac. Hineni, raise the knife. Hineni, plunge the knife. Hineni, Abraham, Abraham. Hineni, stop. At every instance, Abraham proves himself ready to obey the Lord. We talked of Joseph. We skipped over David, but I wanted to talk with you about David for a moment, even taking a couple of minutes here. We've already, we've already shot our time, so it's okay. 
David experienced a, a time in his life when he was very diligent. And then another time in his life when he was not. And we see the horrid results of when he was not. Remember, there was a time when David wanted to be married. We'll not take the time to turn to the passages, but you can look these up later. So David wants to marry King Saul's daughter, Michal. And he expresses that desire to some of Saul's servants, and they go and tell Saul. And David says, why did you tell Saul? You think it's a light thing to be the king's son? He's going to ask me for a dowry. I don't have the money. I can't go marry her. I can't provide what I'm supposed to provide for her. I can't do it. And Saul, Saul, of course, conniver that he was, he said what? Oh, I know how I can destroy David so he won't ever be king. Right? And you can almost see him wringing his hands, you know. Okay, so here's what you do, David. You go out and you bring me 100 foreskins of the Philistines. Now that meant 100 deaths of the, of the Philistines. You go kill 100 Philistines and bring me back their foreskins. And I'll count that as a dowry. Do you remember what David did? That's right, 200. 200. 100 is not enough, King Saul. I'll bring you 200. What does that speak of? It speaks of his exuberance, his diligence, his faithfulness, and so on. David says, 100 Philistine deaths are not enough. 200. This is how much your daughter is worth to me. And like Jacob before him, I'm sure it was a light work for the, for the, uh, for the prize that he was after, Right? Very, very diligent. But then there was another time, also in regard to a woman, when David was idle. Right? His army was out in the field. It was the time for the kings to go out and make battles with their enemies and, and reinforce their borders. Right? Because during the off season, there would be encroachments made and they needed to go out and reestablish their borders. These were God-given borders in David's day. So he had a duty as king to be out there in the field with his army, reinforcing their borders. And instead he stayed home. And sent Joab out in charge of the army. And David was idle. And in his idleness, he became enamored with a woman who was another man's wife and committed adultery and murder to cover it up. And then he conscripted Joab uh, in the murder of Uriah the Hittite. And so there was great, uh, there was great cursing. David's life changed from that point forward. And there was strife in his house. He was driven from his house as a fugitive from his son Absalom. His son Absalom was finally killed to David's great dismay. And then David was brought back into his house again. But it was never the same after that. And David ruined his life through idleness. Right? Whereas at one time he advanced his estate through diligence. See the contrast. Okay? All right, so, so we talked about all of those things. Then finally last week, we ended up with the Lord Jesus Christ, the greater David. And we said that um, if the sluggard is, a, uh, is vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes of them that send him, we remember that there was another one that was sent, the Lord Jesus Christ, sent by his Father with a particular mission, with a particular commandment. And notice that our Lord Jesus Christ was a faithful son. And his father was well pleased in him. And so he was indeed a delight to the one who sent him. And so should we be. So that was in less than 10 minutes last week's sermon. We now move on to some rapid fire antithetical proverbs penned by Solomon. Before we take those apart uh, in their various connections, I wanted to look at the passage as a whole 
and just speak with you for a moment about what biblically we call the antithesis. We've touched on it briefly already today. And beloved, this is something that, that um, well, it's a concept we, we must hold on to. It's a concept that, that, that we must embrace. This is what the Bible teaches us. This is, um, this is a very logical principle. We don't like logic these days because our feelings tell us something different. And, you know, I'm, I'm, if I can continue in to talk about feelings for a moment, I'm sympathetic with that. I have, you may not know this about me, but I have feelings. <laughs> I have certain things that I would, you know, I, I read out of the Bible and my, my initial not so commendable reaction may be to wince because I have not God's mind on something. We must... We must confess that about ourselves and that, and that this concept of antithetical thinking is really the foundation of everything that we do as, as logical people related to God in that reasonable way. We, we know the first three steps in logic, don't we? Without those first three steps, we really will, will, will never be able even to communicate one to another. Right? We have the law of identity. We have the law of contradiction and the law of the excluded middle. And we, we, we come up to that and, and we do that all the time in our speech. We talk in such a way as we actually believe that when I tell you the dog ate my homework, I don't mean the cat flew away in a balloon. Right? That there is identity in those words and their meanings. That when they mean this something, they don't mean that other thing. And they don't mean three or four things at the same time, at least if we're going to have some clarity. Now, we do understand that sometimes our language contains ambiguities, but we learn how to talk around that, don't we? So that we can be clear and communicate with one another. There is such a thing as antithetical logic, at very least, in our ability to communicate one to another. I remember a number of years ago, I voraciously devoured all of Francis Schaeffer's writings that I could get my hands on. And he spoke of a group that developed themselves in Europe, and they were part of the avant-garde um, anti-philosophy of that day. We're talking about the 60s, late 60s, early 70s. And they decided that they needed a name for their group. Well, they couldn't pick a name logically because that was against all that they stood for. They were contrary to all of that. So they opened up the dictionary and blindly turned a few pages and put their finger down on a word. The word happened to be dada, D-A-D-A. And in that European language, I think it was Dutch. It meant rocking horse. And so that's what they named their group because they had randomly picked it out. They were existential in their understanding that, you know, um, existence precedes essence in such a way that whatever it is that you're becoming, that's what you truly are. Whatever you feel is what you truly are. Not you feel because of what you are, but you are what you feel and all of that that was made popular in the 60s and 70s, against which Francis Schaeffer wrote and argued and evangelized. Right? But notice that they 
when they put their finger on the word Dada, that they didn't put anywhere else. And when they chose that name, they couldn't choose any others. Because their name can't be Dada and a billion other names, can it? It's going to be something to the exclusion of something else. There is such a thing as antithetical logic, even when we try to escape it. It's inescapable, beloved. And the Bible presents this to us morally. It presents it to us personally. It presents it to us religiously, and so on. There are truly things that are right and things that are wrong. There are people that the Bible characterizes as the righteous, and then others as the wicked. And notice that the Bible speaks very antithetically about this. There's no uh, righteous, you know, the white, the you know, the pristine white people. And then there's the you know, the the dark people. And I don't mean skin color. I mean you know, dark morally, and then light morally. And then there's something gray in the middle. No, there's nothing like that in Scripture. It's presented to us antithetically. In this passage, it is very very clear. Each verse has an antithetical proverb that says, the righteous, the wicked. The righteous, the wicked. The righteous, the wicked. And so what I wanted to do in the beginning of this this section here is speak with you about that. So the antithesis that I'm uh, speaking about here is truly antithetical. In this passage, if we would look at it as an overview, we see... um, It's antithetical in its characters. We have the righteous versus the wicked used three times. The upright versus the workers of iniquity. And the just versus the froward. Froward means someone who is so hard to get along with you can't get up next to him. He's not toward. He's froward. Okay, so that's the old English word. It means simply someone that is completely unruly and unable to get up next to him. It's also action, it's antithetical in its actions. Speech is used antithetically in this passage. Lifespan is seen as antithetical. Destinations are antithetical. Uh, security and endurance of one is compared to the absence of the other. And conduct is antithetical. And then also there is antithetical mental activity. One has a sure hope which will come to pass. The other has only an expectation which will be destroyed. So there's all kinds of antitheses, even in just these few verses. What is it? Five, six verses, right? 27 through 32. And then there's also strength and endurance in that sense versus destruction. So this antithesis, it runs throughout Scripture. It is not only here in Proverbs 10, it's not only in the Proverbs generally, but truly it is everywhere. So let's turn back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 3, and we'll see some of this antithesis being set forth very, very early on. We get this wonderful picture don't we, that's presented to us in Genesis 1 and 2. And by the way, uh, you know this about me, but let me reiterate it one more time. I believe that this is uh, somewhat historical, that we have six days of creation. And so the, the, the narrative tells us here that there was something that happened 
before the fall that God created. And when God had created everything and set it in its original place and motion and determined all of that connection and so on, that, that the man and woman, they were naked, they were not ashamed, they stood before God without shame, there was perfect harmony, there was no antithesis in that day. In chapter 3, however, we enter the antithesis in that Satan comes into the garden and he is against the purposes of God. This is the first time in human history, in history generally, when there is this interaction such that the word of God is drawn under doubt. God himself is drawn under doubt. Satan, when he, when he speaks to Adam and Eve, what he will do is he will, um, he will place the seed of doubt on the veracity of God's own morality. And he will do this in a, in a very standard propagandistic way that we see playing out all the time. He'll say to them, Has God said that you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Is it possible that God has deprived you of something? His, the crown of his creation? Has he held something back from you, Adam, Eve? Has he kept something that is apparently very good? And what does Eve do? She looks at the, at the fruit of the tree and what does she see? She sees it's pleasant to the eyes, it's good for food and desirable to make one wise. She goes through a reasoning process that is apart from faith. Right? Because faith, I'm sorry, reason without faith always ends up where Eve ends up. And what does... Uh, what does she end up doing? She ends up doubting God's veracity, becomes jealous of God. Um, why should God be the only one that knows good from evil? Why can't I know that too? And so Satan presents all of that. And so Adam and Eve, they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the ground is cursed and humanity is cursed. We know the story. But the other thing that takes place is that humanity is divided. Humanity is divided into two seeds at this point in human history, right? What seeds? The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The seed of the woman is a, is a title that means those who believe in the Lord, those who are in Christ, even from that day, those who are anticipating the coming champion who will rise up where the first Adam fell. The other is called the seed of the serpent. And the seed of the serpent is set forth as those who follow Satan in his rebellion. Okay, so when we come to the end of chapter 3, we still only have, according to the, to the narrative here, two people upon the earth, Adam and Eve. We come to chapter 4, we have something new. We have two more individuals in the narrative. I'm of the opinion that there were a lot more people in the world by this time. But Cain and Abel were also there. And they enter into the focus now of Moses as he writes chapter 4 of Genesis. And he presents two characters to us, Cain and Abel. And what do Cain and Abel do? Well, they both come to sacrifice before the Lord God at the end of days or on the Sabbath day. And in so coming, notice that one is accepted and one is not. And we're, we're not left to guess in scripture as to why one is accepted and one is not. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that it was by faith that Abel offered a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Abel came by faith. 
He is the heir of the righteousness which is of faith. He is the seed of the woman. Cain is not. In fact, John tells us in 1 John chapter 3 that Cain was, quote, of the wicked one. Well, that's a very telling phrase, especially in the context of Genesis 3. He's the seed of the serpent. And so notice that humanity, even in the first family, is divided antithetically between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. This becomes abundantly clear at the end of chapter 4 and into chapter 5 when we look at the two genealogies that are set up. And they are held up completely separately from one another. The genealogy of Cain is not mingled with the genealogy of Seth, who's the son that uh, Eve has to replace Abel, who was killed. But these two genealogies are absolutely separate. And we hear about in the line of Seth that men begin to call upon the name of the Lord. And we hear in the line of Cain that they go out and they start building up Man City. What are they into? They're into entertainments, leisure, things like that. They, they, they make musical instruments, right? They do all those things that are very human, not necessarily sin in and of themselves, but there's not a mention of them ever calling upon the name of the Lord. In other words, they completely satisfy themselves in, quote, Man City. Whereas <coughs> the descendants of Seth, the godly line, well, what do they do? They end up calling upon the name of the Lord. We go on into chapter 6. We recognize that those two lines end up mingling together. And what happens when they mingle together is that the earth is filled with violence, such that the thoughts of man are only evil continually. They begin marrying one with another, believers with unbelievers. And children, we've talked about this before, when you go to seek your mates, Find a godly one, handsome, pretty, a nice-to-have, but godly is a must-have. A follower of the Lord, must-have, not negotiable, not negotiable. And I can guarantee you that if you are, how do I say it, if when you see your future spouse, if he or she ends up being your future spouse, and you, uh, you look at them, and the first time you look at them, you think, eh. You know, it's, it's like Adam and Eve, right? Um, the Lord says, this is Eve. And, of course, the Hebrew word for woman is Isha. And, and Adam says, Isha. And, of course, the Hebrew word for man is Ish. And so Eve looks at Adam, and she says, Ish. Right, ish. Okay, so of course that's that's what sometimes happens. You behold your future spouse, and you, you, maybe your first impression is ish. But then, as you get to know them, they love the Lord. You love the Lord. Suddenly, their looks blossom in your eyes, don't they? They do. It happens. I mean, think of my wife and me. She she looks at me, and I don't know what she's looking at. Right? But, that's, but that's how it works, isn't it? Because if you both love the Lord, things, things grow up in that way. Okay, so we have this wonderful section here then that, that, that shows that these two races are antithetical to one another. And when they mingle, what happens? The godly don't overtake the ungodly. 
It's not necessarily how it happens, right? Ordinarily, it's the other way around. And so the earth is filled with violence. The Lord sends the flood and divides the first family once again. And we see that even in that family, in, in Noah's family, there is those who are cursed and those who are blessed. Right? The, the antithesis continues through the ark and through Noah's family. Let's look at a couple of passages of scripture to support this before we close. I, I, I realize this is a brief introduction, but this is all we need for right now. Matthew chapter 3. We could look at psalm after psalm after psalm. We've sang from Psalm 1 already today, which sets the wicked uh, over and against in juxtaposition to the righteous. But notice how it's said here in Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And the, and the same John had his raiment of camel's hair and a leathern girdle about his loins, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. Then went out to him Jerusalem, and all Judea, and all the region round about Jordan, and were all baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits meet for repentance, and think to say not, or think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father, for I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham, and now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which bringeth forth not good fruit, or bringeth not forth good fruit, is hewn down and cast into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will throughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So notice how John Baptist here simply lays out the antithesis. He says, You think you're the children of Abraham. The promised seed. If we could take that back all the way to Genesis chapter 3, that would be the seed of the woman. It's the seed of the woman that gives rise to the seed of Abraham. John says, not so. You're not the children of Abraham. Actually, you're the generation of vipers. You're the children of the serpent. Now he speaks this to the religious intelligentsia of the day. You see how, how even within the, the, the visible church, this is the visible church of John's day, we have the visible church in our day, we can be populated, can we not, with the sons of the viper, sons and daughters of the viper. This is true. And so notice also how that he says that Messiah will sort this out. And how will he sort it out? He will be like a refining fire and a fuller's soap is how Malachi puts it. Uh, here, whose fan is in his hand, uh, which is also from Malachi, and he will throughly purge his floor. He will gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. 
So, beloved, when we think of the antithesis, we don't need to think of it necessarily with, okay, who are the wicked of the antithesis? Oh, I know who they are. They're men like um, Mussolini, Pol Pot, Hitler, Mao Zedong, Stalin, murderers of millions. Those are the truly wicked that Solomon is talking about there, right? John will say, no, they were Pharisees. They were those who were who appeared outwardly righteous, but as Jesus will say in Matthew 23, a little bit later in this book, that inwardly you are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. You're like whitened sepulchers. And keep in mind that this would be especially difficult for the Pharisees to hear because they kept themselves ceremonially clean in everything. To hear that they were like dead men's bones and therefore unclean would have been especially affecting to them. And Christ chose that, those words and those phrases specifically for that. So it's not Mussolini or men like him. It's not men like Stalin and mass murderers of hundreds and millions of people. That's not what wickedness is. Wickedness is anything that is contrary to the word and ways of God. And beloved, the seeds of wickedness, well, we come into this world with them. There is, as Paul will tell us, quoting from the Psalms, none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, none that seeketh after God. They are altogether gone aside. Righteousness is bound up in the one, Jesus Christ, and only in Him. And His righteousness is available only by way of imputation by faith. That's what makes the difference, as we said earlier when we were talking about the Egyptians and the Israelites, the only difference between them, beloved, as I mean, we get down to chapter 32 in Exodus, what are we seeing? We're seeing the children of Israel gathered around a golden calf, a worship form that they learned from the Egyptians. Practically speaking, they're no better than the Egyptians. What was the difference that night at Passover? The blood on the door. And that's what separates the righteous from the wicked. That is the great divide of the antithesis. Those who belong to Jesus Christ and those who do not. Next week, Lord willing, we hope to open up maybe uh, the two ways that Jesus describes. Uh, Jesus wasn't the first that described that. Moses first described it in Deuteronomy chapter 30. We'll take a look at that. And we'll continue down the path of the antithesis a little bit more in broad and general terms. And then, Lord willing, we will come down to the particulars of our passage and we'll talk about our speech and how we speak. How do we speak? What language do we speak? And I don't mean English or another language. I mean, do we speak the language of Canaan? Do we speak the language of Zion? Or do we speak the language of the world? What does our speech reveal or betray about us? How about our thoughts? How about our actions? We're going to see actions destinations, speech, and other things that Solomon will set before us so that we might have a way to examine ourselves 
and to set ourselves in the way of life by the grace of Christ. So the antithesis is a real thing. There is such a thing as truth and error, right and wrong, and it's not dictated by human reason or desire, although we may be sympathetic to that. It is dictated by what God says is right and wrong. Let's stand and call upon the Lord in prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, we come unto Thee, certainly we, uh, we, we come humbly having heard what we have, that even among the professed people of God, we, we may have, even in the leadership of our churches, those sons of the snake. Father, these are sobering things to us, and we desire to be found in Christ with the man in Isaiah chapter 44. We desire not to be found with a lie in our right hand. That is, clutching with our strength unto lies. But Lord, help us to know what is true. And as John will write, to be in him that is true. Even Jesus Christ, who is the true God and eternal life. Oh Lord, as we think of the antithesis, help us then to make use of all godly means whereby we might be found in Christ. And we pray all these things in his name. Amen.